Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, March 15th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I'm Broadway World's Julie Musbeck. And I'm the theater throwback's Daniela Parcell. Yeah, we are James-less today. He uh, got stuck running late in New York City and his four-hour commute back to Amityville on Long Island. Put it behind, so we're assembling a little different crew today. So thank you both for being here. Daniela, this is your normal day because we'll have the theater throwback at the end of the episode. But Julie, thank you for pinch hitting so late in the day. Of course. So I don't know how this works with the varying ages here with you guys, but did you guys grow up as Toys R Us kids? Yes. That was a yes from both. Okay, yeah. So, (laughs) like, when I grew up, like, those commercials were everywhere with Jeffrey the Giraffe and I want to be a Toys R Us kid. Boop. Like, those were everywhere. And now they're closing all their stores? Like, that makes me very sad. It's very sad. It's the end of an era. It is. The only good thing about it is is I hope there's some great clearance uh, sales on the Funko Pop dolls, because I'll have to stock up on this. (laughs) All right. Anyway, let's get on to the news. Julie, what do we got? All right. The Harper Lee estate sues to prevent Broadway bound to kill a mockingbird. Yes. Yesterday, the New York Times' Alexandra Alter and Michael Paulson reported that the estate of the late author Harper Lee has filed suit against the previously announced Broadway production of Aaron Sorkin's stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Produced by Scott Rudin, Lee's estate claims that the script, quote, deviates too much from the novel and violates a contract between Miss Lee and the producers, which stipulates that the characters and plot must remain faithful to the spirit of the book. According to the Times, the main concern in the complaint, which has been filed in federal court already, has to do with the interpretation of the main character, Atticus Finch. Now, as many of you will note, that starts to get a little interesting when you start to figure in the debate that concerned the sequel slash prequel of the novel that was published late in Lee's life, which presented, uh, you know, a more troubling shade to the fictional lawyer than appears in the original book. However, that novel, called Go Set a Watchman, is not part of this show or the agreement, but according to Rudin, this is simply a case of Lee's estate being overly litigious. He told us at Broadway World, I'm assuming he told this to either uh, Nicole or Rob or sent it via a statement. But either way, according to us uh, over at Broadway World, he said, quote, This adaptation by Aaron Sorkin is a faithful adaptation of Harper Lee's novel, which has been crafted within the constraints of the agreement executed by both Harper Lee and the play's producers before Miss Lee's death. This action undertaken by the estate of Harper Lee is an unfortunate step in a situation where there is simply artistic disagreement over the creation of a play that Miss Lee herself wanted to see produced. It is the kind of disagreement which one expects would be worked out easily between two parties who have a mutual interest in seeing a work produced. Now, that's all standard. I think that's fine. That's what you would expect. Here's where it gets very rudiny. He follows up saying, quote, the estate has an unfortunate history of litigious behavior and of both filing and being the recipient of numerous lawsuits. And it's been the subject of considerable controversy surrounding its handling of the work of Harper Lee, both during her illness and after her death. That's a, uh, a sly reference to the release of Ghost Set a Watchman. This is unfortunately simply another such lawsuit, the latest of many, and we believe that it is without merit. While we hope this gets resolved, if it does not, the suit will be vigorously defended. Now, as we've often talked about here on this show, Fruden is no stranger to throwing shade, which he clearly does here, but his lawyer also maintains that the script, quote, does not alter the fundamental natures of the characters in the novel. So guys, apparently this 
doesn't have to do with Sorkin making To Kill a Mockingbird more of a memory play. It doesn't have to do with having the children played by adult actors. It just has to do with Sorkin giving a more nuanced approach to Atticus, perhaps inspired by Ghost of the Watchmen, than we've you know seen in past adaptations, especially the Gregory Peck film. Now, Julie, you and I were actually talking about the show yesterday before this New York Times piece was made public, so we didn't know anything about this when we were talking about it. Um, and as I kind of referenced before we got online here, you've been firing off plenty of hot takes recently. So do you have any issues with Atticus being a little less you know, lily white uh, in character, if not in skin color in this adaptation? Mm, I'm not sure, because he's such a well-known character. He's just such a figure in literature. I, I don't know how I'd feel about him being changed too much. But I also don't believe that Sorkin would do anything that would be bad or that would present it in the wrong light. I would think that Sorkin would hold this in really high regard. I'm not entirely sure what's happening here or why. Yeah, I mean, I think because it is a strong male central character, you can trust Sorkin to do it justice. If it was a female character, uh, maybe not. Um, Danielle, what, are, you a, uh, are you a To Kill a Mockingbird aficionado? Honestly, no. Um, I read it my freshman year of high school, but can't say I remember too many details, which is probably a bad thing. I should probably reread that. <laughs> what What high school did you go to down here in Orlando? Haggerty. Okay, I don't even know where that is, but okay. <laughs> not not great representation of pretty, your English pretty teachers. Pretty far out of Orlando, actually. Okay, all right, fair enough. We'll get back to that here shortly, but anyway, <laughs> all right, let's move on. Julie, what else you got? All right, now we have got the show and casting news. What's new? All right, yesterday the Chicago Shakespeare Theater announced its 2018-2019 season, and it includes the world premiere of Disney's new musical adaptation of their film, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The show, which will be directed and choreographed by acclaimed Chicago artist Rachel Rockwell, will feature a book by Brian Hill and a score by Neil Bartram, which will also include songs originally written for the film by Richard and Robert Sherman. The original film, and this show of course, was based on the novels by Mary Norton. The production is slated to run from May 30th through July 28th of 2019. No plans thereafter have yet been announced, but this is Disney, and other than Hunchback, they don't really do stage shows that don't come to New York. I guess there was Freaky Friday, too, but they're making a TV movie out of that, so I guess that that suffices as well. Um, if you're unfamiliar with this film, it is a somewhat kind of follow-up to Mary Poppins as it featured music by the Sherman Brothers and both films were directed by Robert Stevenson. It also blends live action and animation, so it'll be interesting to see how they do that on stage. Dame Angela Lansbury and Sir Bruce Forsyth co-starred in the film. Now, Daniela, as we said, you grew up here in Orlando, maybe a little farther out than uh, I, I anticipated, but how familiar are you with bed knobs and broomsticks? You've said before you're not much of a TV and movie person. Yeah, I had literally never heard of this until today. Okay. All right, great. <laughs> Julie, you got anything? Anything for us? I didn't watch the movie until I was, I think, in high school. I had a friend who just had this giant movie collection and made me watch everything I'd missed. I liked it. I don't really remember it that well, but I definitely remember that I enjoyed it a lot. It could be really fun for the stage. Yeah, I don't remember a ton about it either, but I, I do remember Angela Lansbury riding around on a bed underwater. Does that sound right or did yeah. I completely make that up? I think that's right. 
Okay, so it'll be interesting to see what they do with this on stage. There's a lot of people, including my friend Alexandra Silber, who is freaking out on Twitter right now because of this. So uh, clearly there are people that are excited. Apparently none of them are on this show right now, though. All right, sticking in Chicago, yesterday we learned the entire creative team for the upcoming world premiere of The Share Show. Julie's super excited about this one, too, um, which will begin previews on June 12th at the Windy City's Oriental Theater, where Pretty Woman, another one of Julie's favorites, is currently having its out-of-town tryout. In addition I'm making to the- some faces right now, some faces yes, is- that are responding to you. This is a podcast. People can't see your faces right now, Julie. Well, Um, they're there. (laughs) Well, in addition to the previously announced Jason Moore directing and Christopher Gatelli choreographing, the big news was that Cher's longtime costume designer, Bob Mackie, will be designing the costumes for the show. Most recently, we've been talking about Mackie as he was set to redesign his original costumes for the off-Broadway play Wind Pigs Fly, but that show got canceled abruptly just before it was supposed to start performances. They are doing an Actors Fund benefit of it, so you will get to see his designs for that show. But anyway, with the announcement, the production also released some of his sketches of the costumes for Cher during the different phases of her career. I thought they looked very nice. They were fine. Julie is angry about all things Cher and Pretty Woman. I love Cher. I think Cher is amazing. This show's going to look great. It's going to sound great. I'm still not going to see it. Okay, fair enough. All right, um, moving back to New York. Two acclaimed off-Broadway shows got extensions yesterday. First, the new group's Good for Otto will extend one final time at the Alice Griffin Jewel Box Theater. The play by David Rabe, which began performances on February 20th, will now play through April 15th. Then over at the public, Pulitzer Prize winner Bruce Norris's The Low Road has received an extension through April 8th and very well could extend again. And now finally... The most exciting and confusing news of this section. Yesterday, Variety reported something that, honestly, I am still trying to wrap my head around. And that is that two-time Tony winner Christian Borel will be joining the cast of TV Land's Younger for the fifth season. Now, Borel does TV all the time, so that in and of itself isn't surprising. But what is surprising is that Younger is led by another two-time Tony winner, Sutton Foster who just so happens to be Christian Borle's ex-wife. Borle will portray journalist Don Ridley, a man who intrigues Liza, Foster's character, with his charm. Liza will take interest in Don and later confide in him. Borle is scheduled to appear just in two episodes of the season, which I think only has 10 or 13 episodes anyway, that will premiere this summer. Now, guys... Not going to spill any tea here. Not getting into any details. If someone wants to Google details or rumors of details, feel free. We're not going to go there. I mean, you're welcome to. I'm not. But I was surprised when Christian and Sutton appeared together in the Gilmore Girls reboot, reboot about a year or so ago, and they did press for it together. That that was startling to me. I was, as the kids say, shook. But this seems even more surprising, considering this is Sutton's show. So... Let's just say that Sutton and Christian are both far better people, more forgiving, just genuinely better human beings than I could ever be, because I I don't think I could do this uh, if I were them. Uh, Do any of you watch this, Danielle? I'm going to assume you don't. uh, But do either of you watch Younger? No, I don't. But I mean, they're both in such different places in their lives. Now that I think it makes sense that they would sort of heal whatever rift was there. I mean, Sutton's married. She's got a kid. Christian shaved his head. They're, <laughs> they've definitely moved on from something. 
And I would think that, you know, it's so hard to make enemies in the theater community because you're all just shoved together in a couple of streets and blocks. And I think it's a good sign. And I don't think that they could get away with being enemies for that long. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy for them. Don't get me wrong. I, this is just surprising because as someone who, you know, follows, you know, is, is in the theater community, so to speak, you hear all these things and this is just not something that I would have pegged, but good for them. I'm very happy for them. If, if, it, if they're cool with it, I'm cool with it. I just, it was like, I, I'm a big fan of that two eyeball emoji. And, uh, I used that quite a bit when this one was, uh, released. If Patty and Christine can work together, anyone can. Who? Patty Lapone and Christine Ebersole. Oh, oh, right, right, right. I was thinking something to do with Andrew Lloyd Webber because that's the that, that was the first uh, feud of Patty Lapone's that come to mind. Yeah, I, this that's a little different though. I mean, Patty and Christine were never married, and one didn't do. Never mind. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> what else do we got? Speaking of Andrew Lloyd Webber, Julie. All right. Andrew Lloyd Webber has announced that a new London theater will be renamed. Yes. Yesterday, the Right Honorable the Lord Lloyd Webber announced that he will be renaming the West End's new London theater after the legendary choreographer Dame Gillian Lynn. Over a seven-decade career, Lynn is most known for choreographing the original productions of The Phantom of the Opera and Cats. ALW's really useful group owns the new London and will make it the first West End theater to be named after a woman when it is rechristened later this year for you guys if if, if there was going to be a broadway theater renamed after a woman any woman you don't have to tell me which theater you would rename although if you want to you can but what female theatrical figure do you think deserves to have a theater on broadway named after her elaine stretch comes to mind mm, that's a good one I, i'd have to think about it but I think I would rename the Broadway because it always bothers me <laughs> that there is like the Broadway. That's a good point. So maybe is we it... can change that to the Elaine stretch. <laughs> That's fair. I, I think maybe in a couple decades, a Daryl Roth theater on Broadway would be good. I know there's a Daryl Roth theater down in Union Square, I think. But yeah. I feel like Daryl Roth would be a good one, uh, you know. But uh, I, I'm always a big fan of theaters being named after people whose names aren't necessarily household words. Like, I'm all, I'm fine with, you know, Stephen Sondheim. Of course, he deserves it. But, like, Stephen Sondheim's name is going to be associated with Broadway theaters for decades to come because his shows are going to get revived. Um, people are always going to talk about the actors that are there. So I, I kind of like it when it's producers or even directors, maybe, people who might not have their names remembered as well in the theater community if it wasn't for the theater being named after him. But that's just me. So anyway, all right, cool. What else we got, Jules? Does anyone call right. you Jules? Does anyone call you Jules or did I just do that for the first time and you're offended? No, no, that's always been my nickname, especially right. in Australia. As soon as they nicknamed me, I was like, yes, I'm in. Good day, mate. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Lin-Manuel Miranda has teased that Ben Platt will be involved in his next Hamill drop. Yes, yesterday Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted out, but it's just a black and white picture of him looking through the glass at a recording booth and Ben Platt is standing in front of a mic. Lynn Mann's uh, caption said, quote, I'm really excited slash nervous. Could have gone with little Sondheim excited and scared, but whatever. I'm really excited slash nervous about Monday's March hashtag Hamel drop because it's for you kids. So I guess we're getting this on Monday, fresh on the heels of Weird Al Yankovic's 
uh, the Hamilton Polka, which was amazing. Um, what do you guys think? What, if, if we don't really know what this is going to be, other than it's going to involve Ben Platt, what do you think? If you had to like pick a song from Hamilton that you think he might be working on something for, what do you think this might be? I hope he does like oh god, what's it? Guns and ships. We get to see him like <laughs> drop oh, some beats. <laughs> that would be amazing. I like that. I, I'm thinking it might be <laughs> might be Dear Theodosia. That might be. Uh, mm, that sounds a, more likely. Yeah, that yeah. You went for. Oh my god, I'm crapping my pants. That's amazing. I went with safe because like what, what was that thing where they did when ever when they were like trying to get people to um, sing something from Hamilton and there was like a donation to Puerto Rico. Do you remember that thing a few months ago? Oh, the ham for all. Yeah, that ham for all. Like all the singers went. Dear Theodosia, and like all of like the actors and funny people went with Cynthia other Reba stuff. Cynthia broke my heart. Oh my god! Did she I still do Dear Theodosia? Did she do yeah. Dear Theodosia? Yeah, I remember like Leah Michelle did Dear Theodosia, and I was like, okay, that's fine. It, it sounds good. You guys are all good singers, but like, give me some Guns and Ships or something. That would be so much better. But oh well, I guess you take what you got. All right, Daniela, it is that time of the week. You are here because, as I mentioned earlier, we have a theater throwback. Come on, give me a flop or a ghost story. You know I love those. Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, So today's throwback is pretty timely. As we know, tonight, March 15th, will be the first preview of the fourth Broadway revival of My Fair Lady. So for today, we're going to go back exactly 68 years to March 15th, 1956, which was the opening night of the original Broadway production of My Fair Lady. With book, music, and lyrics by the writing team of Lerner and Lowe, My Fair Lady takes its plot from Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, telling the story of Eliza Doolittle, a flower girl who is trained in speech by Professor Henry Higgins so that she can pass as a quote-unquote proper lady. Moss Hart helmed the original production with Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison in the leading roles. And while My Fair Lady ended up being a massive hit, dubbed by many as the perfect musical, the show did have a few troubles before making it to Broadway. The first challenge came simply with writing the thing. George Bernard Shaw had been doubtful about turning his play into a musical in the first place. He had stated that only Mozart would be capable of doing it. And by the time Lerner and Lowe were approached about the project, it had already been turned down by Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hammerstein. So needless to say, they had their worries. But luckily, they were up to the challenge. The first attempt didn't go too well. They had trouble finding a subplot to add, and they struggled to open the show up enough to add a chorus. After just half a year, they ended up abandoning the project, but luckily in 1954, Lerner found some inspiration again, and they picked up right where they left off. In early 1956, rehearsals began with, as I mentioned, Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison in the leads, but there was just one more problem. Rex Harrison was not a singer. He had developed a sort of talk singing style for the show, which was fine, until he had to perform with the orchestra. So for some reason, his first rehearsal with the full orchestra was the same day as the first performance, and things didn't go well. He felt so insecure and uncomfortable singing with the band that he actually refused to perform that night. But once the producers (laughs) threatened to tell the audience why he wouldn't be performing, that he had stage fright, he quickly got it together and changed his mind and went on. Luckily, the rest of the pre-Broadway engagement went pretty smoothly, and the show was in fantastic shape when it opened on Broadway at the Mark Hellinger Theater on March 15, 1956. 
My Fair Lady ended up running for 2,717 performances, and it became, at the time, the longest-running Broadway musical in history. By 1964, a film version had been produced starring Audrey Hepburn as well as the original star Rex Harrison, who obviously had gotten more comfortable in the role. And the musical has been seen on Broadway three more times since, and now for a fourth. My Fair Lady will be heading to the Vivian Beaumont Theater tonight with Bartlett Cher at the helm. And Lauren Ambrose will star as Eliza Doolittle, and Henry Haddon Payton will take the role of Henry Higgins. And here's hoping he's had his orchestra rehearsals. <laughs> uh, Cameron Adams, who's in the ensemble, one of my favorite people on Broadway, she did uh, Instagram some pictures from the Sits Probe uh, a week or so ago. So they've okay, had that already. So we, we've got it. <laughs> um, I've talked about before, um, My Fair Lady is the show that made me fall in love with theater. My grandparents took me to see the pre-Broadway tour of the Melissa Erico Richard Chamberlain uh, production that they took it out on tour before coming to Broadway. That must have been in 1994. I think um, I was in seventh grade. So no, maybe 93, 93 or 94 uh, before both of you guys were born, obviously. But um, uh, this is the show that really started it off for me. And it, while I don't know that I would ever say it's my favorite show to this day, it still has a very special place in my heart because it's the show that really ignited my love for theater and, and essentially changed my life. So I will be seeing this um, a week from yesterday. Actually, I'll be seeing the first Wednesday matinee the uh, at the Beaumont. So I'm very excited to see what the hell Bart was doing with this casting. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen a production of this, so I'm I'm really hoping I get a chance to because it seems uh, like there's a lot of hype. It's so good. Like the, the <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, Julia prob- Julie probably hates it because she hates everything apparently. <laughs> um, I do hate my fair lady. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I don't hate everything, but I do hate my fair lady. <laughs> I don't know if we can be friends. Anyway, all right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt and subscribe to Something Like a Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Daniela, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcel and on Instagram at Daniela Parcel well. Julie at IHateEverything.com, right? No. No, at Julie Musback on Twitter and at JulieK26 on Instagram. All right, whatever. All right, James and I, I think we'll be back to close out your week on Friday. So have a great Thursday, everybody. Thank you.